1: Hello, I'm Faraj Asat and I'm the producer of How I Found My Voice, a podcast by Intelligence Squared. We hope you enjoy this episode, but just before the main event, I wanted to let you know that this season of How I Found My Voice is sponsored by The Out, an innovative premium car rental service powered by Jaguar Land Rover. If you live in London, like me, and want to get out of the city for a weekend, The Out is designed for us. It's a premium car rental service without the hassle. Just download the app, book your vehicle, and a car will be delivered to your doorstep within three hours of booking. When you're done, the car will also be picked up from your chosen location. My colleague recently used the service and loved how easy it was. He went on a last-minute weekend trip to Brighton using a Land Rover Discovery Sport. They have a whole range of premium vehicles to choose from, including the Range Rover Sport and the all-electric Jaguar I-Pace. In every booking, you get unlimited mileage, additional drivers, fully comprehensive insurance, and even the congestion and dart charge included. So if you're a Londoner who wants to rent a car in style, download the Out app today. Now let's go to this week's episode.
0: All anyone is is talking about is like Brexit or what the royal family is wearing this week, and you start to feel mad. Like what why aren't we talking about this? I also think we need shorter work weeks to deal with the fact that a sustainable life actually is a slower life. I am not going to apologize for the fact that I'm going to burn some carbon in order to get us off carbon. And I'm not going to feel guilty about it. I'm not going to beat myself up about it.
2: Hello and welcome to How I Found My Voice, a podcast from Intelligence Squared. I'm Samira Ahmed and I'm going behind the celebrity persona to find out what influences shaped their success. How did artists, writers, activists and business leaders grow up to become such great and unique communicators? If you enjoyed this episode, do rate and review us on Apple Podcasts. Naomi Klein is one of the most famous and articulate voices of the environmental and anti globalisation movement. A journalist as well as a campaigner, she's also the first academic to hold the new Gloria Steinem Chair in Media, Culture and Feminist Studies at Rutgers University. Her first book, No Logo, published in 1999 when she was only 29, became a handbook for a new protest movement, fighting back against the forces of global brands, pollution, and union busting worker exploitation always writing at the cutting edge of world events. Her books include The Shock Doctrine about disaster capitalism and No Is Not Enough about how to resist Trump's shock politics. And Naomi... Your latest book is called On Fire, The Burning Case for a Green New Deal. And you're here in London just as the Extinction Rebellion protests have been bringing the city to a standstill and causing some controversy, I think it's fair to say. and We might talk about that later. But let me take you back to the start. You were born in Montreal in Canada in 1970 at a time when you know, the Vietnam War was still raging. It was a very interesting time for feminism. And your family was always politically active, wasn't, wasn't it?
0: Yes, I definitely grew up in a political household. I, I think when you're really young, you don't, nece- you're not necessarily aware of that being anything strange. It was just the just the air, the air, the air we breathed. It but was, remind yeah. us,
2: because your family has quite a fascinating um, history of activism. Your grandfather, from the start.
0: Yeah. So my father, Michael Klein, was what is known as a red diaper baby. His parents <laughs> were uh, socialists, and were part of different radical movements interesting ones actually my grandparents were kind of back to the landers so and were the americans yeah my whole family is american i'm canadian i have dual citizenship both my parents were born in the united states so my father was born in newark new jersey my mother was born in philadelphia and my father's family was very political His father, Philip Klein, and his brothers, he had many brothers, um, many of them were artists. Uh, One of my great uncles made political cartoons for The New Yorker. They were all part of socialist youth groups. My grandfather was an artist, and he got this terrific job for an artist, which was to be an animator at Walt Disney. And he worked on some of Disney's um, really iconic films like Bambi and Fantasia. So we're
2: talking about the 1940s.
0: Yeah. I'm, I actually think he may have started in the in the late 30s. Mm-hmm. And in 19, 1942, I believe, the animators at Walt Disney decided that they were being exploited, that they were being paid extremely low wages for this company that was getting very, very rich uh, off of their work. Um, and it was kind of like an animation sweatshop. And there there are lots of them these days. Uh, and so they went on strike, and it was the first strike in Disney's history. This is in California at this point. He, he, uh, the family had moved to California, and my grandfather was one of the organizers. And when the strike ended, they were, all the organizers were fired and blacklisted. Oh, yeah. So that, you know that was a really key politicizing moment, I guess, for the whole family, but they were already political. <laughs> and um, yeah, my father would tell us stories about I think he was two years old when Disney was on strike and my grandfather had a motorcycle and and he used to sit on the motorcycle at age two and scream scab.
2: <laughs> your two-year-old father.
0: Yeah. You know, these are the,
2: the Klein family stories we grew up on. <laughs> so when your parents moved to Canada, was that to avoid the Vietnam draft?
0: Yeah. So in the, I guess it would have been 1967, my father was drafted and he had, was already part of the anti-war movement. And a lot of people of his generation believed that it was a profoundly unjust, immoral war that the U.S. was guilty of war crimes, and and my father uh, knew that he didn't want to go to Vietnam, and and he faced the you know, the choice that everybody of his generation faced: you didn't want to go, which was either to go to jail or to go to Canada, and he went to Canada with my mom. I think she was. They had a shotgun marriage. Um, oh, really? <laughs> yeah, um, her my my mother's family was quite conservative. So they were absolutely appalled uh, by all of this going on. I believe they sat shiva, um, which is what Jewish families do when you die. <laughs> oh, the morning. Yeah, they went. They did. They did. They sat shiva for my mother because she married my father, this troublemaking well your m- dodger. Your mother sounds
2: like a woman who knew her own mind then. She
0: did, but I, I should say they also sh- sat shiva the first time she went skiing, <laughs> so they seem to have deployed this tactic fairly liberally. <laughs> You're dead to me. <laughs> <laughs>
2: well, tell me a bit about what kind of child you were and then let's talk about your mother some more.
0: I used to always say to my mother that she must... Love my brother more because he was so good, and I was always getting into trouble. Oh, were you? And my mom would always say, "Yes, but you're so interesting." <laughs>
2: oh, what a wonderful thing to be yeah. told! What do you think she meant?
0: Um, what kind of interesting? <laughs> I don't know. I guess I kept them on their toes. I always had a bit of a naughty streak, I suppose. I loved animals as a kid. Uh, always, always loved nature, and I was lucky growing up to be exposed to. A lot of the natural world, my, like I was mentioning earlier, my grandparents, after my grandfather was blacklisted and wasn't able to work as an animator, they were involved in this movement called Nature Friends, which was a, it was like a social, it was like what we would call today like an eco-socialist movement. Mm-hmm. And they were part of this community that were urban people, politically active people on the left who decided that they wanted to spend more time in nature and less time in cities like Newark, which is where they were. Newark is, you know, was a very polluted city. And they built this kind of commune in New Jersey. Uh, had all these hiking trails and it was a combination of like arts, like music and um famous Folk singers like Pete Seeger and Paul Robeson and Woody Guthrie would come and visit and play. And it was really about access to nature, that all these kids who were really working class kids in Newark should be able to have access to nature. So you go there and spend time there? By the time I came on the scene, my grandparents had built a house just down the road from Nature Friends, this wonderful kind of cabin in the woods. They would still go to all the activities at Nature Friends and use this beautiful pool that they had built as a community, a spring-fed pool. So, yeah, I would spend a lot of time there. Yeah, so this sort of nature element was very a big part. My yes. grandmother was a really big gardener. She was a really braggy gardener. I don't know if you know gardeners like that. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> like <mother>. you <laughs> would eat, like anything you would eat, she'd be like, I grew it. You'd be like, "This is good." I grew those. You know, I grew those tomatoes. But I grew it's that interesting lettuce. Interesting.
2: From what a young age you had both the experience of you know growing up as a city kid, but also seeing the importance of environmentalism in
0: your family's life. And it's funny because we never named it environmentalism. Mm-hmm. It was just how they wanted to live as artists. And you yourself, your mother
2: said you were interesting. I wondered, were you quite outspoken as a child?
0: Oh yeah. I mean I think as a young as a youngest child as well I sort of had a keen sense of unfairness. <laughs> I was not an activist as I said before. You know I uh, my brother was an activist. I never I wasn't joining groups or anything like that. I was very social. I was interested in my friends and I was interested in music and you know but I I definitely had a sense of social justice of right and wrong. Really? Oh, I I, de- I did, and and I mean, honestly, part of it came from an ex- the experience that I had when we moved to uh, for one year. We lived in Oxford, as my father was
2: in the UK, and
0: yeah, my father was on sabbatical. He was a, a medical researcher, and we I had gone to Jewish day school in Canada, and my community was Jewish. I all the kids I, I went to school with were were Jewish. Um, and so I had never really experienced discrimination at, as as a Jew. And then we moved to Oxford. And all of a sudden, I was in this very strange context. When I was 9, uh, I turned 10. So it was, that year, it was like 79, 80. Mm-hmm. And at the school that I went to... I was suddenly hearing the word "Jew" as a swear word. Really? Yeah. I mean, this was you know this was not uncommon. They, mm-hmm. you know, they so was Irish. You know, you know. But it was so shocking to me because, like I said, I had been going to school only with Jews, and so I, I heard this and I thought, oh my god, I'm going to get found out. Like if people realize I'm Jewish, then I'll lose all, I'll lose the few friends that I made. So, you know, I I was very careful to to hide it, or I thought that I was hiding it, but I actually. Don't think that I was successfully <laughs> hiding it. that I, I discovered later. But anyway, it was a really jarring experience to, to witness sort of overt anti-Semitism in the schoolyard. And then I went back to Canada for the fifth grade. And I noticed that my own school, that we had our own problems with racism. Um, there was a really, really strong hierarchy in the Jewish community in Montreal. Um, between Ashkenazi and Sephardic Jews, there was there was a very large because Montreal's French speaking, mm-hmm. a large Moroccan community, and the white Jews at my school would say all kinds of racial slurs about Moroccan Jews up the street, <laughs> and I and I just started getting really really irate about it. So the first political thing I ever did was when I was Bat Mitzvah at age twelve, where you have to give a speech. I wrote a speech about about racism in the Jewish community, which was quite controversial. I bet it was. (laughs) Well, that is using your (laughs) voice.
2: I want to ask... About your mother, Bonnie, because she directed a famous feminist anti-pornography documentary, Not a Love Story, in 1981, so you'd have been about
0: 10, 11. Yeah, what impact did she have on you? I mean, I grew up with her filmmaking and feminism before Not a Love Story. I mean, she was part of the first women's uh, film studio, uh, I think, in history. So she worked for the National Film Board of Canada, and and the National Film Board created this this was called Studio D and it was all women and they were staff directors and my mom was one of the staff directors and they made films that were kind of consciousness raising films for second wave feminism and so you know what I grew up with was just like there was there were always films being screened in the living room and there were and groups of women watching films and crying and talking and you know this sort of a sense of like you know media, films, start discussions are sort of embedded in movements. And I think that's had had a big impact in the way I see my role as a writer and as a filmmaker. Um, And you've always noticed, you know, how misogyny is often in there
2: in some of the issues that you're tackling. You know, the whole global capitalist movement, um, a lot of anti-environmentalism really does seem to target women. There is this misogynistic edge.
0: Well, sure. I mean, when I was researching No Logo, and going to sweatshops in the Philippines and in Indonesia where the shiny products of our lives were being made. I mean, the workers I, were meeting, I was meeting were 98% teenage girls. This was a pink-collar pink, pink collar, uh, workforce. The reason these companies hired young women was because they felt that they were easier to control, and they didn't hire just any young women. I remember interviewing the head of an export processing zone in in the Philippines, the, the Cavite Export Processing Zone, and there's a chapter about it in No Logo where he said that they had a policy against hiring people from that province. They only wanted girls from from northern sorts in the mm-hmm. Philippines, from far away. He said it's just because the people in this province have a bad work ethic. But uh, uh, that's not that's not why it was. It was because when you're separated from your family and you're far from home and you don't have community, you know, you're a lot more vulnerable of and you're course. a lot easier to exploit. Let's talk about you.
2: You did go to university, the University of Toronto, though you didn't complete a degree. What did you go there to do
0: and how did mm-hmm. you spend your time? Uh, my first year, I think, was 1989. And... I studied literature and philosophy. You know, I I enjoyed my classes. But I really got involved in, in journalism really, really quickly. I think within the first year, I was features editor of my college newspaper and then features editor of the university-wide newspaper and then editor-in-chief of that newspaper. So it sort of took over my life, journalism, very quickly. Um, I loved writing and it seemed to me that there was lots to write about.
2: Well, I'm interested in what, because I I was leaving university Mm -hmm. and going into journalism around 1989. And of course, the Berlin Wall came down and Mm. it felt, certainly in Britain, like a very optimistic time. Mm. A positive time for news stories. You went on to a job at the um, Globe and Mail. Mm-hmm. this a very famous Canadian yeah.
0: newspaper. What kind of stories were you covering and what, where were your interests? So I didn't intend to drop out of university. What happened is, is that I got this summer internship, this much coveted summer internship at the Globe and Mail the year after I was editor of the campus newspaper. And then there was an early election called that year. And they offered me a job to work through the election, and I had to choose between having this job oh, and going see back why to you school and finishing did, yeah. my degree. And I thought, hmm, this is a pretty good opportunity, especially because it actually didn't feel like a very optimistic time. You know, this is like 93. It was a recession, okay. and it was really hard to get jobs, and there were layoffs in, in the media industry. So that played into why I felt like, okay, if I'm offered, if I'm being offered this job, I have to take it because there had been a hiring freeze for, for several years it was it was a, it was the 90s it was a, you know economic austerity it was yeah. well and yeah. now again i can see straight away in a yeah.
2: connection to the book you were to write only a few years later that the human cost of these big economic policies that were being rolled out across in countries like the soviet union we saw there was a word for the kind of capitalism it was a sort of wild west version wasn't mm-hmm. it it was mm-hmm. absolutely no rules yeah. so what kind of stories were you covering and how did it kind of lead to you writing no logo
0: I was covering all kinds of stories. I mean, this was also the AIDS crisis. I mean, we were we were covering a lot. It was, honestly, it was a it was a heavy time, as it turned out, to be in university as a woman because there was this horrific hate crime in my first year of university, the Montreal massacre. Tell and, us about that, because didn't that lead to the setting up of the White Ribbon Alliance? It did. Yeah, it did. Yeah, so this this was a a really formative event for my entire generation of of students in Canada where uh, um, on December 6, 1989, a gunman went into an engineering school and um, separated the men from the women and said, you're all a bunch of effing feminists and killed 14 women, point blank.
2: Mark Lapine shot 28 people at Montreal's Ecole Polytechnique before taking his own life. The 25-year-old began his rampage by entering a classroom and separating the male and female students, shooting all nine women in the room, killing six of them. Overall, he killed 14 women and injured 10 others, along with four men, in just 20 minutes before turning the gun on himself.
0: He had a, a list, they discovered a list with a, pro- a prominent feminists who he, he blamed... Uh, He had some sort of narrative that everything that had gone wrong in his life was because of feminism, that he wasn't getting into the schools, he wasn't getting the jobs. And so he had this hit list of feminists. And it included women who I knew who were friends of my mother's, who were prominent female broadcasters, like a woman named, named Francine Pelletier was an amazing CBC journalist. And so it was really felt like a very personal attack. It was an attack on And on women at university at the time that I was at university. And it was also an attack on women like my mother who were outspoken feminists. So it really was a big jolt. And we started writing a lot about, you know, the system, the kind of system that would produce that hate. Which, of course, is
2: more than ever now. People do refer back to that Mm -hmm. incident and look at how... The Whether it's incels or mm-hmm. just the yeah. general level of vitriol directed at women in public life yeah. has increased again.
0: Definitely. I mean, this was all offline. There was no internet, although there was, I remember there was a modem up on the third floor of our student newspaper and there was one person who knew how to use it. It would make this very scratchy sound. So the other thing that was happening in my, in my university years is that there was a serial killer in Canada, um, and he was stalking our campus. And so we were running in our newspapers these composites of this man who had been raping students on our campus. And there was all of these. We were arguing we need better lighting where people were being attacked. And it turned out that it was this, um, this man named Paul Bernardo, who was probably Canada's most famous serial killer and rapist. But he was on the University of Toronto campus when I was there. So it was a really quite frightening time. And so the you know the first articles I wrote were all about like campus safety and a feeling of fa- that our our university was failing to keep us safe. But the other thing that I was covering in those years was this was these were the first advertisements that, you know, you go to a university campus, you see today, you see billboards everywhere, you see fast food restaurants everywhere. It's, you know, the line between a shopping mall and a university campus Mm -hmm. um, is pretty blurry right now. Uh, um, But the boundaries were a lot clearer when I started university, that this was a public space. This was not a place where you were advertised to. It was not a place where you had, you know, fast food franchises. It was a non nonprofit public university, and there weren't those sort of for-profit elements. And in the years that I was there, I started to see more and more deals being made between the university and corporations in order to fill funding shortfalls because of that austerity. And we started to have, you know, arguments. Well, why not have advertisements in bathrooms? You know, what, is it, what, what does it matter? About? Yeah, and, and, you know, how about if we replace, you know, the cafeteria with McDonald's? So and to, so we covered all those debates.
2: And so tell me then, how does that turn into a, the book No Logo, which became this hugely important yeah. manifesto that drew a lot of people's attention for the first time to, as you say, the corporate takeover of civic space? And the implications right. I it. mean, and
0: there was other there were other elements of it too that we were experiencing, which was sort of the this voracious kind of devouring of youth culture. The the word cool hunter was like a new word, yes. right? This idea that you know marketing firms had to f- find whatever a trend before it it was even conscious of itself as a trend and, you know, then market it back to young people. And obviously marketing youth culture is not new, but the voraciousness of it, the, the idea that there wasn't even a minute be- before it was co-opted and sold back, you know, at least, you know, for our parents' generation, there was there was like a, a few years before the mm-hmm. the 60s was consumed and then sold back to itself. So we were, you know, we were writing about all of these issues, these debates. And the reason that it led to no no logo is a couple of things. But one of them was just that I had just had this really clear feeling that I knew that this represented a shift and that it was what we were seeing a loss of public space. We were seeing a loss of the commons and and the, the the logic of the market was entering into spaces that had previously been protected from it, cultural spaces, educational spaces, uh, intellectual spaces, what have you, media spaces. And I knew as a university student that the next generation that came in after me would just – feel like it had always been thus, right? Because you have this sort of tur- yeah. a four-year turnover, right? And so because we were there when the first ads came or when the first fast food restaurants came and when those first corporate deals were made, it just seemed to me that it was worthwhile just capturing this moment and saying, you know, it wasn't was not always this way. These okay. decisions were made. Um, and this is a shift. This is a new model.
2: The impact of No Logo was stunning. It felt like the mainstream media and governments just hadn't seen it coming. Uh, there was an assumption that young people weren't politically engaged and suddenly everyone wanted to talk to you. Did you have a sense of having a powerful voice at that
0: moment? Yeah, I guess I did. I mean, it was a completely bizarre experience for me because I, was, I wasn't expecting the book in any way to be International. I, I mean, I
2: I we should I think, say yeah. the um, the impact of there were you know violent clashes at the WTO World Trade Organization gathering in Seattle. In,
0: um, was it within a few weeks of the book coming out? Which I well, think well, the book was actually at the printer when the Seattle protests happened. Um, and then you know there were a series of protests, uh, you know, in Genoa. Uh, every time there was a summit to advance this sort of neoliberal agenda gl- on, globally, whether it was an IMF meeting or a WTO meeting or g G8 meeting, there would be these huge protests. And so No Logo came out just as this movement was exploding. And No Logo was about that movement, right? Because although it hadn't Gotten mainstream media attention. There were a lot of signs that this was going to emerge. There was, you know, there was already an anti-sweatshop movement. There was, uh, you know, already a movement that was taking aim at Shell for the environmental and human rights devastation in the Niger Delta. There was already resistance to this kind of takeover of, of corporate space and the, you know, what we used to call ad busting movements. Mm-hmm. So you know, the way I saw No Logo was sort of like weaving together this thread that I thought was going to emerge as something like a coherent anti-corporate movement, but hadn't yet. And just as the book came out, it it did, right? So yeah, so I had this voice, but I had no experience being a public figure at all. And, you know, the skills that it takes to Hide away for four years in your twenties um, and write a book are actually really, really different than the skills to be a public person and speak at rallies and do media. You, you actually have to be quite introverted to want to spend your twenties quietly writing a book. So how, how
2: did you? Become that
0: person. Well, I don't think I did about. it very well at first. I was I was really, really self conscious about it. Um, I wasn't a very good speaker. I would just, you know, the first speeches I gave, I, I would just barely look up from my notes. And it, it it took a lot of time before I had any looseness as a speaker, um, or, or just confidence that I wouldn't just completely screw it up. Was I mean, I didn't moment? have those skills. I was confident as a writer. Yeah. I knew I could write. I just didn't didn't know how to do all these other things people were asking me to do. You know, the truth is, I'm not a rally speaker, but I'm going to do my best for you. I'm just a boring writer, but I'm pissed off, yeah. <laughs> So I'm saying... Your bosses got caught with their hands in the cookie jar. Your bosses treated a G8 and G20 summit as if it was their personal ATM machine. I mean, honestly, as a speaker, I still feel like I'm working to just be able to be really present in a room full of people and and leave the notes aside and really connect with audiences. I think I'm getting better at it. Well, let's talk yeah. about <laughs> On Fire, which is, again, it's come up
2: just at the time when people are really talking about uh, global heating um, in a way that for years they were debating whether or not it is really happening and, and yeah. the scale of it. Um And you discuss in the book the scale and the length of disinformation campaigns by, again, these major corporations, these fossil fuel producing companies to keep the debate quiet. What's been the secret, do you think, to getting your voice heard in that um, and finding that we are finally at the moment where perhaps the public debate is challenging that disinformation?
0: Well, I think a lot of it has to do with lived experience. I I just think, you know, there are only so many record-breaking months and years that we can go through in terms of heat, in terms of storms, in terms of wildfires before people are are like, okay, yeah, I think something's happening. Particularly in North America, you know, so many people's lives have been directly impacted. We have these staccato superstorms, right? And they impacted many many coastal cities and of course Puerto but, Rico, the Caribbean. Then we have flooding in the middle uh, yes. of, of the continent and then we have wildfires that for the past few summers have just not just hit individual communities and destroyed them but blanketed the entire coast in this suffocating uh, um, smoke that blots out the sun it's and hard yet. to describe i try to describe it in the book what it is like the relentlessness of it
2: and yet you'll know that so much media coverage focuses on the individual incident of fear whether it's firefighting yeah. but this great reluctance to talk about, well, the long term of what we have to do now, that still seems to be a challenge. And also people get very disillusioned, don't they? They think it's so overwhelming. What can I do? Yeah. Yeah. How do you answer that? How did you want to use your voice in the book? Because it is a manifesto. It is saying there's stuff we can
0: do and you come up with all these proposals. Well, I think part of the reason why people feel disempowered is because the solutions that have been on the table for so long in the face of this huge crisis have been too small. Um, And people understand that recycling is not going to solve this. And they also look around and they say, wow, like the corporations... they don't seem to be doing much. In fact, they just seem to be telling me to shop more. I mean, something just doesn't add up so, about the way we have responded to this crisis. And so, I now, now for the first time, we have politicians and movements who are cohering around a common agenda, which goes under the banner of a Green New Deal, which is not a singular carbon-based policy like a carbon tax or cap and trade. It is really about transforming the building blocks of our society in a way that get emissions down in line with what scientists are telling us we have to do, which is very, very deep and and very fast, but to do it in a really deliberate way that puts economic and social justice at the center of the plan. Because part of what has held us back when it comes to climate action is that so many people, because of these decades of neoliberal policies that have made people's lives so uncertain, so precarious, and so stressed— you can't ask people to care about, as they say in France, you care about the end of the world. We care about the end of the month, mm-hmm. you know, directed at Macron when he asked you know people to accept a an increase in the price of of gasoline. We need to respond to the climate crisis in a way that creates very good jobs and people see uh, that they're going to have good unionized jobs in their communities. We have to respond to it in a way that directs, uh, the 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 finances that are going to be generated in this transition to services that have been systematically starved like healthcare, childcare, um mental health services and and you know I also think we need shorter work weeks to deal with the fact that a sustainable life actually is a slower life, right? I think a lot of the reason why we reach for that quick hit that disposable, you know, dinner or whatever it is, is because we're all just rushing around yeah. and a lot of people just don't have nearly enough time to think about, well, is this, you know, a sustainable product or not?
2: Well it's really good you talked about things like, you know, needing a slower pace of life and things because you know the title on fire implies mm. the idea of, you know, as Greta Thunberg said, you know, our house is on fire. We have to take speedy action. That can also make people very pessimistic. Mm-hmm. And it struck me reading the book is that you, you You spread this interesting line between being very, very honest about the gravity of the threat.
0: But ultimately, am I right in thinking you are an optimist? You know, I, I, I have a complicated relationship with that term. I, I you know, I feel terror a, a lot of the time. Mm-hmm. You know, it is impossible to be immersed in the science. It is impossible to love the natural world, as I do, without feeling tremendous grief and rage for what is being needlessly destroyed, because we have known about this crisis for so long. And it is greed that has kept us from doing what is necessary. And, you know, I do, I do have hope, I do see a shift that is happening. Um, There is an appetite for the kind of change that we need and a fearlessness in this new generation of activists? Well, can we talk about that? Because
2: we're talking in London just after the Metropolitan Police have banned all Extinction Rebellion protests across the city. That's being challenged in the courts um, at the time of this recording. I've certainly really noticed the range of ages and Mm -hmm. backgrounds in in activists um, around London. Thousands and thousands of people who have all found their voice. Mm -hmm. But I know there's some controversy, for example, some, you know, took over a tube train, which is public transport, the other day. What do you make
0: of Extinction Rebellion? Well, I think it is a movement that it has a lot of diversity within it. I know there were big debates about that decision to um, target uh, uh, the tubes during rush hour. I personally think it was a very poor decision. My friend Astra Taylor, who's a wonderful writer, reminded me that there was a, a, an action um, some years ago in New York City where activists blocked the the turnstiles and and made the made the subway free for a day, mm-hmm. um, which is a much better climate uh-huh. uh, uh, um, a much way of, of better way of communicating the urgency of the climate crisis, um, and using your civil disobedience and your willingness to get arrested and connecting with working people who have to get to work and are incredibly stressed. So I, you know, I think that was, that was, that was a poor tactic, but I'm very grateful that Extinction Rebellion has created a space for people to connect with each other about their feelings of fear. Because what I, what, what I find is that a whole lot of people are feeling terrified all by themselves. Um, they're reading those stories about the loss of Arctic sea ice, Um, you know, or 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 seeing terrifying images of the Amazon in flames, and then they turn on the televisions and all, television, and all anyone is, is talking about is like. Um, Brexit or what the royal family is wearing this week, and you start to feel mad. Like, what? Why aren't we talking about this? And as Greta Thunberg said, you know, if this is true, why isn't everybody talking about it? And so, I think what the student strike movement has done for young people, and what the Extinction Rebellion movement has done for, as you said, many generations of people, is is is, is allowed people to understand that actually it's the system that's mad, <laughs> and that, that that and that and that. That feeling that so many of us have alone, that this is really the most serious crisis that we face, that 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 the building blocks of life are are in crisis. The systems that we depend upon are in crisis, uh, that all of life depends on. Um, and and so creating a space for people to express that alarm and to send a clear message to politicians is incredibly important. I do have a critique uh, about the fact that, the demand is really, you know, tell the truth and admit that's it's an it's an emergency, you know, and have a sort of a citizens assembly to talk about what to do. I think that I've been a part of, of of many movements now for 20 years, since that those first big demonstrations against the World Trade Organization, but also Occupy Wall Street and these moments where um all of a sudden societies that where everyone was saying, well, people are apathetic, they don't care about this, this is just something that just a handful of crusty activists care about, and then all of a sudden it becomes a mainstream issue and you realize, wow, you know, we're not alone. We have a majority of people on our side. You know, this happened in Europe after uh, the 2008 financial crisis when suddenly you had, you know, all of Greece and all of Spain in public squares or the Arab Spring and people pour into the streets. My experience about these political moments of political effervescence when suddenly things tip, and it seems like everyone is with you, is you better have a plan. (laughs) Because a state of emergency opens up a political vacuum, and if you don't fill it with your plan, somebody else is going to fill it with theirs. There are different ways of responding to the sense of emergency around, around climate disruption. You know, you could have a strong arm leader step in and say, I agree, it's an emergency. Let's close the borders to migrants. Let's mm-hmm. just protect our own. That's the way Marine Le Pen is, is responding to it in France. So I think there's an incredible moral responsibility in these times that are so turbulent. And when xenophobia and all kinds of hatred are, are surging around the world because people are feeling so insecure that we really need to put justice-based solutions on the table Mm -hmm. and not just demand, you know, action and emergency because we can't control how people are going to use that sense of emergency. Well,
2: we've talked now about the big picture and how governments might need to respond. Can I talk about the individual? Mm -hmm. Because, you know, you you said people have worked out recycling isn't enough. You'll know that, you know, whenever Thompson turns up at a protest, it's like you flew first class these accusations of hypocrisy which are being thrown a lot at individuals Mm -hmm. who speak up about climate. What's your answer to what individuals can do about that and and in general how they should think about their involvement? So I think that
0: I think we're all hypocrites. (laughs) Um, You know as soon as you care as soon as you, as soon as you call for change, a systemic change, not you know small changes, but actually changes to the system in which we are operating, you're going to be a hypocrite because we're all within that system. I think that this tactic of constantly calling each other out for not being pure enough is a, a way to really repel uh, people from from joining the movement. I think it serves the interests of uh, fossil well, to fuel be honest, companies a lot and of critics do it to, to shut down. Uh,
2: public figures who yeah. speak out. So I think you you've said something about you should embrace the accusation.
0: Is that right? Well, because as an activist, I think we should just we, we should we should admit we're all hypocrites, and hypocrites are welcome here, because the truth is that having a you know a perfect you know, carbon-free life is is pretty much of, of a luxury that only privileged people can afford at this point, or extremely poor people. But most people don't have access to the public transit that they need. They don't have access to uh, renewable energy. They don't have Access to good, healthy food, and so we need we need system change. And they're also just too busy and too overworked to really worry about those micro changes. So, yeah, so we're
2: talking about things like taking you know, going on holiday on a plane um, that gets picked out and singled out as
0: look. I mean, I think that, extreme. You're saying we just need to relax about that. I think I'm not saying that we shouldn't that that we shouldn't try to lower our personal carbon footprints. I think that we should. And I think a lot of the things that we do to lower our carbon footprints actually improves our quality of life. Mm -hmm. I just don't think we we can mistake that for the scale of change that is required. And I think it's going to take so much energy and so much focus to win the kind of structural change that we need that I just worry that this is a, a distraction. I also honestly feel like There is so little time. I mean, you know, I I know it's alarming to say this, but we really do only have a handful of years. And so, I, you know, I admit that even though I have radically reduced the amount that I fly, even though I turned down about 98% of the speaking requests that I get because I can't justify the carbon, I will fly when I feel that I can make a significant enough impact. I mean, I have been working on The concept of a Green New Deal now for more than a decade. I have a lot of experience on what works, what doesn't work. And I'd like to share that experience because I think this is an incredibly critical moment where we need not to make mistakes. Or if we make mistakes, we need to make new mistakes, Mm -hmm. not the same old mistakes. And so I am not going to apologize for the fact that I'm going to burn some carbon in order to get us off carbon. And I'm not going to feel guilty about it. I'm not going to beat myself up about it. Um, And I really want other people not to beat themselves up about it. And about Emma Thompson, I think she's a goddamn hero. I love her. And I really wish people hadn't beat her up for sticking her neck out like that. Finally, what advice would you give
2: to young people who might be activists who might be wondering about how to use their voice?
0: Well, you know, I think young people are finding their voice in this moment in such an extraordinary way, and and are and are challenging older generations to step up and join them. I think this, the the student strike movement has been extraordinary in that way, and there's also a lot of young people in in Britain and in and and around the world who are uh, getting involved in these movements, calling for the solutions. I mean, the only reason why we're talking about a Green New Deal in the U.S., but now it has spread to other countries. I mean, that inspired the Green New Deal momentum here or the Green Industrial Revolution. There's a debate about what it's going to be called here within the Labour Party. But it all happened because a group of people in their late teens and early 20s went to Washington, D.C. and occupied the office of the most powerful Democrat in Washington, Nancy Pelosi. And then they were visited by a young congresswoman, the youngest woman ever elected to Congress, Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, and together they, they put the Green New Deal on the map and it proved so popular that now the majority of the candidates vying to lead the Democratic Party are all saying they're going to run on this, and, this is, and I believe this is the vision that can defeat Donald Trump in the next election. That was all young people. So, I mean, I think they're doing great. It's the older people I'm worried about, to be honest. <laughs> Naomi Klein, thank you so much.
2: You've been listening to How I Found My Voice. I'm Samira Ahmed and the producer is Farah Jasset. We'd love to hear from you. Let us know what you think of this episode by rating it and reviewing us on Apple Podcasts.
1: Hello again, it's Farajasat, Jasat, producer of How I Found My Voice. We really hope you enjoyed this week's show. Don't forget to subscribe and tune in to our episode next week. In the meantime, we wanted to give a big shout out to our sponsor, The Out, an innovative premium car rental service powered by Jaguar Land Rover. If you're a Londoner and want to get out of the city for a weekend, download The Out app for a premium hassle-free experience. Choose from a range of cars including the Range Rover Sport and all-electric Jaguar I-Pace. The car will be delivered and picked up from your doorstep. You get unlimited mileage, additional drivers, fully comprehensive insurance and even the congestion and Dart charge included. Download the Out app today.